I think about their lives and I think about how lonely it must have been for them mm. to rub shoulders so often with with white people who professed abolitionism, but still did not think that they were worthy of dignity and respect and continue to live their lives faithfully and continue to serve in these ways and continue to serve alongside these people while still holding on to their dignity and still holding on to their faith is just incredible. And so then, you know, Charlotte is his granddaughter. And so seeing the seeing seeing it carried forward um into different generations is just so encouraging. Then she marries Francis Grimke. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic reform Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today's book club episode is brought to us by Baker Books. And our guest today, the author of the book that we're talking to today is Jasmine L. Holmes. We're going to be talking about her book, Crowned with Glory, How Proclaiming the Truth of Black Dignity Has Shaped American History. Great book. Both Peter and I loved it. A little bit about this book, a summary here on uh, Baker Online says this about the book. Crowned with Glory explores the stories and writings of many of these men and women, both familiar and lesser known, to shine a light on what has always been there. An enormous movement of Black Americans demanding the liberty they were promised and deserved with moving and insightful reflections on these oft forgotten and or suppressed voices. Author Jasmine L. Holmes offers a hopeful and encouraging testament testament to the power and unrelenting, unrelenting cries for justice that will strike a chord with anyone who is looking for a robust Christian history of resistance. So please go to our show notes and click the Baker link. It'll take you right to this, this book. There's other uh, helpful information resources on our show notes, how you can connect with us on social media, our email, our YouTube page. If you're not already watching this, uh, just a reminder, you can watch these conversations on YouTube if that's more your thing. And then uh, local church finder. If you are not at a church that is preaching the gospel well and uh you're not at a church to call home there is a linked a local church finder it is a reformed link so if it would be more focused on the opc urc pca and others uh, but we are hoping you're going to a confessional bible believing christian church so hopefully this podcast is driving you to that. So let's jump into this conversation. I'll let Peter further introduce our guest today, Jasmine Holmes. Yeah, we have 
Jasmine L. Holmes, who's a passionate writer and educator who celebrates Black stories through her books and public history resources. She's got a love for literature, academic rigor, which you're going to hear about in this, and immerses herself in research to uncover the hidden narratives that shape our world. Uh, her commitment to centering Black experiences shines through her writing, which includes the books Carved in Ebony, Mother to Son, and Crown with Glory. Uh, as a research assistant and teacher, she shares her expertise with lifelong learners and educators alike, inspiring them to expand the understanding of history and its impact on our society. Alongside her husband and three sons, Jasmine calls Jackson, Mississippi home. You can find her at www.jasminelhomes.com and connect with her on Instagram at jasminelhomes. So it's a pleasure having you on our show, Jasmine Holmes. Thank you so much. Of course. So uh, first question. So beyond just uh, the kind of academic and writing bio and stuff, tell us more about Jasmine Holmes, the person. Uh, my husband wrote that bio for me. And so whenever somebody reads it, I'm like, ah, she thinks I'm smart. Um, I've been married to my husband for nine years in about a week. Um, we have three sons. Oh. Um, they are seven, almost five and just turned two. Um, I am in grad school at Jackson state university studying history. Okay. And, um, yeah, I have a grad assistant job and, in addition to writing and I write a little bit of fiction on the side and mm. yeah, mm. just that's me. Awesome. So what do you do with all your free time? Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a joke for those who are listening. I'm horrible at jokes. That's a, that's like, how, I don't know how you are in grad school or a mother have kids and write. That's as that insane, but that is awesome. I don't know. I don't know either. I, the camera can only see me because my house reflects everything else is going on right that's, now that's why i have my my wine thing in the background so it, <laughs> it, it distracts people from everything else that we have because you can see that little like that little uh thing with a yellow cap that's my dog's food thing that's you can tell it just how so not presentable our areas as well <laughs> so you've written a few books on the topics of motherhood race i did any more so what's what's the background about this book and your reason for writing it so every book that I write, um, kind of, you can tell the inspiration from the book that came before. Mm. So with Mother mm. to Son, um, I published that in 2020. And I wrote that book uh, after I had had just like a summer of reading um, some really good epistolatory books. So The Fire Next Time, um, Chimamanda Adichie mm -hmm. uh, as another one that I read. Mm -hmm. um, they were just like all together. I just read these epistolatory books and I was like, I want to do this. And then um, there was a chapter in Mother to Son where I talked about history and like untold history. And then my mm -hmm. next book was about um, Christian women and their un untold history. Mm -hmm. um, and then this book came out of the research that I did for the last book. So they just kind of like build mm -hmm. each other. I've been moving further and further into historical writing since the first one. There you go. Not, it's not work harder. It's work smarter. So you just do your <laughs> research with yeah. other stuff so you can write more books. That's That's a good idea. Why not? And like I said earlier, uh, all three of us love uh, the subject of history, studying history, mm -hmm. uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And mm -hmm. that's what a lot, a lot of this book really is just <laughs> transparent about being yeah. honest. Like what, what's, or just like the covering over happened. of stuff that was ugly and it's like just made prettier. Mm -hmm. So it's good that you're getting this out there. And so this is a book that has a historical foundation to it. Um, 
Thank you for introducing and reintroducing important black men and women abolitionist leaders that fought back against slavery in America. So there's very there are many abolitionist figures that even disagree with each other how freedom would play out. You explained that in the book pretty well. However, they are united, uh, generally speaking, in a biblical truth versus the hypocritical pro-slavery Christian whites at the time. What are the biblical truths that really kept Black Americans' hopes alive? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So the truth that unites the entire book is the truth that men and women are made in God's image. Mm -hmm. And as we're made in God's image, we have dignity, we have identity, and we have significance. And all of those things should be respected um, in the way that we're treated and should be in our minds in the way that we treat other people. Um, it's a fundamental foundational Christian truth about people and who people are and why people matter. And these abolitionists from all different walks of life, from all different parts of America, born both free and enslaved, all understood that one truth. That was the one uniting truth. Mm. Um, and it's something that kept popping out to me over and over again as I read through abolitionist speeches and as I read through just abolitionist stories um, for the book that came before this, hmm. I was like, oh, we, we talk a lot about the image of God and a hmm. lot about um, how man is made in God's image. And it's something that a lot of abolitionist literature, um, like the from the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, um, they had this little emblem and it says, I'm, I'm a woman too. And hmm. then for the men's version, it was like, I am a man too. And it's such a simple statement it's such a simple phrase but it really was the foundational truth that united um this entire part of the movement that, that i'm exploring in this book hmm. yeah and coming into my question this is built off of uh nick's question so before my actual question um so crown with glory too comes from a specific biblical passage Can you talk about where this comes from and why this is so important kind of just to lay the, the groundwork for your book yeah, so I am a terrible titler of books, so I steal titles from other places. Um, <laughs> and so Crown of Glory comes from Psalm 8, um, where the psalmist talks about the fact that God has made us and we are crowned with glory and honor. Yeah. Um, the That verse just reminds me of the dignity inherent in people who are made in God's image, who yeah. are crowned with glory. Which is um, everybody. Yes, yes. And also the imagery of being crowned, the imagery of being royalty, being part yeah. of the Christ um, is so opposite of chattel slavery and the enslavement of others. So mm -hmm. it just, it was perfect. That's good. Yeah. So coming to this, uh, you, you talk about this in the beginning and then you talk about this again at the end of your book, mm -hmm. you, you quote a ton and there are big blocks of quotes, but there's a lot of primary resource that you go through. Uh, <laughs> you talk about, more than your publishers and your readers might expect, or maybe yeah. wanted on the front end. Yeah. Like, no, I want more of your voice. And you're like, no, I'm going to use, I'm going to use their voice. Well, why, why is it so important for readers to interact with these people directly versus mediated either through your voice or another's? So a few reasons. Um, the first, the first reason is the, the base level reason that my friends who are historians get on to me all the time for, which is I did not go to school for history. I'm going to school for history now and I'm really mm -hmm. excited about it, but that's not my background. And so I really wanted to be upfront with, hey, this is where I'm getting this research. Mm -hmm. You don't know me. Like you don't know <laughs> who I am. You don't know, you know, what what perspective I'm coming from. So I really want to make sure that I'm very research forward in showing you, hey, I don't have these credentials that mm -hmm. just tell you that I've done the work. So this is me showing mm -hmm. my work. 
Um, that's the first reason. But then the second reason was uh, growing up in conservative evangelicalism and having a certain um, historical narrative that I was taught that is different from the, the truth uh, that happened. A lot of times I would be faced with sources that would claim to be primary sources, but they would take like a quote here, like a hmm. sentence here, a phrase there, and just really do a lot of riffing massaging. and contextualizing. Yes, yes, like so much massaging. And so I really wanted to be upfront with, I'm not doing that. This is what what it seems like is what it is. Um, and then thirdly, I just am a really, I love these words. And so it's really hard for me to um, cut them down. I'm actually yeah. running into that problem right yeah. now in grad school where my professors are like, "That's this is a great quote, but I don't need... <laughs> All of it. And I'm like, but I, I need just, your you words. Yeah. No, no. I'm like, you do need all of it. You do. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. So I just wrote a book thing. Yeah. You got to yes. <laughs> need to take this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, pretty close to what Peter just asked, but kind of digging a little further. Um, we're looking at the afterword of your book. That part of your book is a helpful explanation of what your book is and isn't and how and why you wrote it. Um, it was a very helpful afterward. Not every book has these really robust <laughs> explanations. And, and it really was. It just says, I, hey, this is why I write it. You're like, oh, OK, now I, the, I get why he wrote this. If the book was a main course meal, this was a really lovely dessert. I mean, this this afterward was great, great substance. Um, so you say, uh, like Peter was asking, so get, digging a little further, you say, quote, it is important to let the enslaved and objectors to enslavement speak for themselves for several reasons. And you explain three main reasons, which does honor those black Americans defending Christianity in light of this horrific part of our country's uh, past. So what are those three reasons? Oh, I don't have it in front of me. I don't know what I said. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I can, or just uh... in general. Yeah. The, the reasons why this is so important. Yeah. Just in general. So, so much of the conversation about the enslaved happens on behalf of the enslaved and yeah. not from the perspective of the enslaved. So we kind of speak, speak for the enslaved. Um, and part of that is a result of the lack of literacy, um, the legislated lack of literacy mm. among the enslaved. But then another part of it is just a base level, not having respect for the words and experiences of people who lived through enslavement. Um, also, as Christians, again, I grew up reformed. I'm still reformed. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up reformed Baptist. I am now Presbyterian. Um, the true reformed. I'm, yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> <I'm totally laughs> um, but I, growing up reformed Baptist, there's so many people that we prize um, in our past and in history whose words we really prize. Like Jonathan Edwards comes to mind as someone mm -hmm. who Every reform person is like, I can quote mm -hmm. Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, if you read John Piper, you read John Edwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, there, there is a robust set of work outside of the types of people that we've already been taught to revere and look up to. And unlike Jonathan Edwards, a lot of the Presbyterian pastors that I quote in this book did not own slaves. And so nope. that's refreshing. <laughs> that's nice. Yep. Right. That's true. Yeah. <clears throat> so I want to. Again, bridge into my next question, because I think these are helpful transitions. For those who are listening, and I'm going to kind of channel kind of white evangelicals who are listening, I was like, hey, why haven't we been told some of this stuff before? Where maybe this is a conversation that's always existed within the black community, but it's not one that's exists in the white community, because we've been 
sold a narrative or told this doesn't really exist, wasn't as bad. So like, what? why haven't we heard these stories before? At least for white evangelicals, I'll say. Right. I mean, I think sometimes we have so tied our Christianity into our patriotism that anything that threatens our level of patriotism feels like it kind of threatens Christianity. And so it's like, if I open the lid off of Pandora's box, then I'm going to have to question a lot of things that I'm not ready to question. Um, I'm going to have to, you know, everybody is, I was reading a book literally last night um, and in the introduction, it was like deconstruction is a trend and it's going to destroy the church. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's go. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk about this. But I, I mean, it's something that's, that's really frightening to people. Um, the idea of, and everybody has a different, you know, definition of the word deconstruction, but the idea of deconstructing in the dictionary sense of the word, other yeah. beliefs we have had is really scary. Um, and so I feel like for a lot of us, we just haven't learned these things because we haven't been taught to ask the right questions. Uh, and I think that that's because we are, again, tying so much of our Christian identity to our national identity and also tying our national identity to whiteness. Because if our identity is as um, Christians and Americans, then all along we should have been like, okay, well, the examples that I'm seeing of Christianity and Americanness only look a certain way. Where are the rest of them? Um, and instead of just assuming that they don't exist, we should go out and find them because they're there. Hmm. Yeah. So that bridges into this, which is why I asked that first. So both you and your husbands are members of a PCA church. Uh, and you talk about <clears throat> ministerial desires, the blockades, racism, and tensions within both Presbyterian, I'm just talking about Presbyterian because we're all Presbyterians here, and broader denominations when it comes to the training, ordaining, and pastoring of African Americans. So with as much vitriol and sinfulness that American or African American ministers faced, um, you would expect them to only respond with like kind of equal hatred. And some, and I guess in a sense, did. But what how were how were some of the responses to what they saw? within like 19th century America? It's so interesting because um, a lot of people have this narrative in their minds that black Christians were Christians in the 18th and 19th century because they were forced to be Christians Yeah, um, because they're enslavers. Well, it was like good of- that they were enslaved because they got introduced to Christianity right. from slavery. Exactly. It's like they're enslavers beat Christianity into them. And that's why they believe yeah. it. Which is why slavery but- is good because they became Christians because of it. Exactly. Or why Christianity is bad because slavery was totally part of it. Um, But in reality, the enslaved church was a persecuted church, especially after Nat Turner's rebellion in 1830. Um, A lot of enslavers, a lot of slave narratives after that period talk about not being able to go to church. They couldn't read, so they weren't allowed to read the Bible, Um, not being able, not being allowed to gather only being allowed to go to their enslavers churches. And then a lot of people in later slave narratives who were interviewed in the thirties are like, yeah, I didn't ever hear about Jesus. I only heard about that. I was supposed to obey my master. Um, And so you have this group of people who are Christians, but are not allowed to practice their faith um, and hold onto their faith in spite of that fact. It's like, well, what, how, how does that work? Well, they looked at the Christianity of their enslavers and they were like, well, that's not the real thing. What Mm. I have is, the real thing. What my enslaver has is not the real thing. And mm. when I first started reading, reading which is their- what the enslavers did not want to happen is totally not totally not. Um, and so when I first started realizing that it made so much sense for 
um, these Black Christian ministers to rise up because they realized that white Americans did not have a corner market on what, what the truth of the scripture is and what the gospel is. And that's that's the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, for people to have an entire mm-hmm. robust Christian worldview when they're not even allowed to look into the Bible and see what <laughs> that's supposed to look like, that is the yeah. Holy Spirit. And to not reject, and it's, it is, to be, on, to be honest, it, it is astonishing to me that they looked at the religion of the enslavers and didn't just say, I don't want that religion. <laughs> they looked at the enslavers and said, that's, that's their practicing this wrong. I want the religion still. I still want Christianity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And also that the fact that they were withholding the gospel from people, I mean, <laughs> they were, they were, they were purposely uh, making education lower and illiteracy so they wouldn't be able to even read the scriptures. And that's like anti Matthew 28, great commission. Yeah. That's like doing the opposite. So that, that it still blows my mind every single time I read one of these firsthand accounts that like, like Frederick Douglass or somebody like that, who, yeah. who sees the religion of them. And it still blows my mind that they are like, yeah, I don't want to be Christian. This is, this is terrible. That's the Holy spirit at work. You're saying mm-hmm. like, Yeah. So something you touched on earlier, right before the last question, if the, if you remember it, you were talking about the mistake of limiting Christianity to just white Americans, you know? Um, so that brings up like a, the, the, the apologetic fact that I absolutely love. And you brought out in the book and I was really excited when I, when I saw it, that you <laughs> brought up the fact that Christianity began to spread like wildfire in the first century and encountered Africa before it even touched the West and mm-hmm. the rest of Europe and whatnot. And that's found on page 100. Um, but how is this an important historical uh, apologetic Christian fact? There's a point that you put it in the book and what w- was the point you're trying to connect with the, your, your, the, the, you know, you're talking about American history. So is there, what, what was that apologetic kind of fact pointing towards in the meaning of your book? I think that so often we see Christianity as this Western in- invention um, because of the way that it spread over here and because of the way that it flourished. Yeah. I think that we also have a tendency to look at um, the prosperity of the West and say, see, it's because we're Christian and because God loves us the best. And that's why we're prosperous. Mm-hmm. Um, we're God's nation. But, right. We're God's nation, which is like, okay, Babylon was super prosperous too, but go off. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's so important to talk about how Christianity spreads so that we can have like a vision in our heads of the fact that it did not start in the West. Um, and Christianity in Africa is such an interesting conversation because the people who were, Africa's huge. Africa's way bigger than any map shows it to be. I'm always flabbergasted when I see how many different countries can That's fit true. in Africa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Christianity in Africa was in the North, um, Eastern, Western? <laughs> I think Northeastern. Yeah. Yes. The cradle of civilization. Part, yes. And, and kind of moved westerly like through that way but it wasn't down in the part of the west where most of the enslaved africans were um taken from and brought to america Mm. um so for some of them Hmm. because of the conquest of um the portuguese in the 1500s some west african nations like angola um became catholicized and so there were people who were brought over from africa who were already practicing catholicism um, who then came to America and, you know, took on 
the religion of America and other things like that. But there were also people who were not introduced to Christianity at all in Africa because of where they were in Africa who mm -hmm. came over to America. And so it's just, I, the reason why I wanted to talk about it was just to show how complex the spread of Christianity is and how complex the spreading of um, the spreading of the gospel was in the continent of Africa, um, but also to talk about the fact that the gospel was in Africa before it was Amen. in America. Yep. Some of the first Christian churches in Africa, and then we go up to, you know, yeah. fourth yeah. century with Augustine. I mean, so, but then yeah. you see, like, to your point, sometimes you see kind of old paintings rendered, mm -hmm. and then a lot of these African um, church fathers tend to be on the wider side and it's like i don't think that guy was white i think he was rather dark but yeah. it's mm -hmm. like it's also kind of a, a little bit of a narrative being told mm -hmm. there too um yes. one thing i want to ask too i actually didn't i can't believe i didn't send you this question on the front end but they want to talk about some of the, the women that you profiled in mm -hmm. this book and both those whom we've heard of maybe rosa parks being one that i think everybody's heard of and then those we have not heard of who not, not like they did a different thing, but they just kind of lost in the history. But see, talk about some of the women that we've heard of in these movements, the women that we have not heard of in these movements. Rosa Parks was a huge, exciting one for me. Um, I read uh, Daniel McGuire's At the Dark End of the Street. And it's all about Rosa Parks and her activism before refusing to give up her seat yeah. on the bus. And I think so often we think about Rosa Parks as this like old lady who was just tired. And, yeah. and I'm like, I'm in my thirties now. And I'm like, she was not old. First of all, why did I, think yeah. she was like hobbling onto the bus. She was like in her forties, fifties, yeah. not That's old. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but also had made a conscious decision. Like I'm going to start, I'm going to start the Montgomery bus boycott today. Like I'm going to go on there and agitate today. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's really cool. But then the, the through line from Rosa to refusing to give up her seat, she did that because Claudette Colvin did it a few yeah. months earlier. This 15 yep. year old girl who was nobody's like, ever heard of her. No, who was like, I'm just, I'm not going to get up. I, and the, the way that she said it, she was talking about it later. She was like, I felt like Sojourner Truth was holding down my one shoulder and Harriet Tubman was holding down my other one, which mm -hmm. is so amazing because Harriet Tubman refused to give up her seat mm -hmm. on a public train in Philadelphia in 1865. She brought a half fare because she was a um, veteran. She had mm -hmm. served during the Civil War. She had her half fare. She's sitting in her seat. Um, these white men tell her to move. She won't move. They pick her up and remove her so violently, so physically that they break her arm. Mm -hmm. Um throwing her off of this train. And so whether or not Claudette Colvin knew that, because I didn't know that before recently, yeah, but whether she knew that, she understood the through line of this is this is resistance that has been going on for a long time. And I'm going to be a part of this. And I'm looking back at these other women um from history and I'm I'm saying I'm going to stand with them and I'm I'm not I'm not going to move. And I I love that. So even just Black women who didn't give up their seats on public transit. Um, Rosa Parks, Claudette Colvin, Harriet Tubman, um, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper is another one. She was mm -hmm. an orator, um, a poet, a Renaissance woman. I love her. When I get to heaven, I'm going to just make a beeline towards her. They call her the bronze muse. So I think I'll recognize her because I feel like she's gorgeous, probably. Um, Elizabeth Jennings Graham was a teacher who wouldn't give up her seat on the trolley. And there was a whole situation after that. Um, IDB Wells, of course, she refused to give up her seat in Tennessee and she had a whole legal case. So just in that one genre are all of these names of people mm -hmm. who came before Rosa. Yeah, which again, kind of plays into this narrative that you talk about and expose that if we hear about somebody, we hear about Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. 
But when we kind of assume like, oh, that was the first time that somebody had not given up their seat to a white man. And then you trace the history. It's like, no, she's actually following in a line of other people. And so she's very conscious of what she's doing. It's not just like, I'm the first one. It's right. there's a line that comes before me and I'm, I'm continuing this line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's awesome. So um, for both Nick and I, and we've talked about this, if, if people haven't seen us, we're both white. Uh, and those <laughs> those among our listeners who are white, and this can be, and I'll admit, and I'm sure you've run into this, this can be a hard topic for a lot of us who've really never been ex- exposed to this before. My, my wife, who's Hispanic, um, exposed me to this when we first started dating, and I did not I did not take it well at all. Um, and I started learning, and I was like, oh, this is, this is a lot bigger than I thought it was. Um, we can learn from our, our brothers and sisters, our North American, nor, or, sorry, our African American brothers and sisters it relates to shared image bearing so what what can we learn from their understanding of image bearing because it's not different than ours it's just like a it's a look at the diamond that we may be blind to and for those who are listening who are african-american who anyone else who has faced similar racist systems attitudes and backlash what would you want them to hear so both talk to those who are white and are like this is this is hard for me to hear. I haven't heard this. This kind of goes, like you said, this goes against what I thought, my identity. And for those who are African-Americans, like, you know what? I'm not sure I can do this. This has been so tied to it. I'm, I'm not sure I can I can go along with this. Yeah. Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either $15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Um. To my white brothers and sisters, I I actually, in a sense, um, I am I am black. I I always it's so funny because when people hear me on the on podcasts, sometimes they meet me and they are surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, that's because I grew up in the suburbs in Houston, Texas. I was homeschooled. Yeah. I was always the only black girl. Um, yeah. and that's me being hyperbolic. There were like a couple, but like yeah. you know that's like saying. my wife growing up. Even though she grew up in Santa Ana, which is heavily Hispanic, she went to a private school and she was yep. one of the only Hispanics in private school. Yep. And so I grew up with um, my friends would go to like civil war reenactments on the weekends and they would be on the confederate side oh Um, oh, geez (laughs) right 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 and so i would but but at that point in my life i was like oh yeah because the civil war wasn't about slavery i get it don't worry Um, like you know what i'm saying so i had to learn i had to i had to come hmm. out of my little bubble and learn more and understand more and contextualize a lot of experiences that i had had um, in the past, I'll talk about this a little bit more when I shift to talking to, um, black brothers and sisters. Yep. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day, um, or it was not the other day, but it stays with me. And it was talking about how teaching black children, the wrong version of history or incorrect version of history is like this continual racial gaslighting 
where it's like, I'm experiencing things that feel really racially charged, but you're telling me that it's not. So my brain is just going to keep on pretending that it's not, even though it seems like it is, but okay. And it just captured my experience growing up perfectly. And so I also had to come to that conclusion of looking outside of the things that I had normally been looking at and looking outside of the people that I had been looking at. I think I do talk about this in the afterward as well, but oftentimes when we're looking for fruit of Christianity in the past, we're shaking the wrong trees. Like we're looking at Dabney and we're looking Mm -hmm. at, you know, other such people who were extremely vitriolically racist. Dabney's systematic is so stinking like widely read and then you read his comments and you're like that came from a minister yes mm-hmm. yes and somebody who who like had so much good to say like so much theological understanding but didn't he's understand a student in so many part. ways and then he just just like kicks it and yeah. it's like yep. how is this possible <laughs> yeah and so looking outside of him and realizing because i think i think sometimes the tendency is to be like how is this possible well it just shows you that even the mightiest of us can fall <laughs> yeah you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Like that's yeah, yeah. that's it. But also, there are people outside of Dabney who were also doing really intense theological study who did not fall into these same traps that he fell into. And so, yeah. finding those people is really important. We shouldn't be- around the same time as Dabney. You got Warfield, yeah. who was an abolitionist, who wrote really good stuff and was very against slavery. Yes, yeah, Spurgeon. Getting Spurgeon, yeah, t- yeah, totally. There's some great voices. Yes, absolutely. Um, so it's really important to be willing to look to other trees for fruit yeah. um, and to trust that God always has a remnant. God always has. He is not just sitting on his throne while every single Christian in America thinks that slavery is okay. That's not my God. That's not how God works. There's mm-hmm. always people who understand. There's always people who are advancing the truth. It's just sometimes we have to move the lens to find them. And that doesn't say anything bad about um you personally or your ancestors personally, it says everything good about God and how yep. God works and the fruit that God brings in, in his yep. people. Yeah. Um, and then to black brothers and sisters who are tired, I, oh, I say, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you do. Um, I think what, what keeps me grounded and rooted in the faith again is the faith of the people that I write about in this book who faced so much and still found um, still found the beauty of Christianity because they were able to divorce it from the cruelty. I mean, really, honestly, seriously, the crimes against yeah. humanity that were committed um, during slavery, they were able to look at that and say, that's not Christianity. That's you're, you're saying one thing, you're doing another. Yeah. Um, and I really want to honor that. And I really want to walk walk in the footsteps of that and i think so many times when we look at christianity we see it as we do see it as a white person's religion and we do see it as yep. being owned by white western folks um but in honesty it's just not no it's just not. historically and, it's not even close to the case right right and i and i get why we think that because like americans are super arrogant people and i told i get it <laughs> i get yep. it but it's really important to think outside of that and it's also really refreshing and empowering and Writing this book was just a wonderful experience of realizing that my faith comes in a long line of Black Christians who um, also loved God. You know, my faith is not a betrayal of um, African American identity or anything like that. Yeah, not at all. Because my identity, first of all, because my identity is hidden in Christ. But secondly, also, um, the African American church has been robust in its defense of the image of God and its understanding of God. Yeah, and then just quick little comment, and that's this is again me channeling our white american and white kind of across the world audience 
where like we just we're not exposed to some of these texts and so we just don't see sometimes the problem we're like oh maybe it was it was bad but it wasn't that bad and then you read some of the enslavers you read some of the ministers and you're like they're like how on earth could they have pos-? and it's not even just like we modern people are like smarter than them it's like that wouldn't have been okay anytime that's right how is this right. possible like how is this possible that anybody can say anything close to this yeah which is why it's so important to read those words and yeah. also read you know again back to the the huge walls of quotes it's important to read those words and it's yeah. important to read other people in the moment saying yep. that those words are not okay yeah and then reading that the black voices that you that you put up it's like it just gives you like you said just an incredible appreciation for their faith mm-hmm. and saying that they put their faith in the gospel and not in what people were telling them absolutely and i mean i would also say too that christianity in america is super rich in black areas and churches mm-hmm. i mean the endurance very often. yeah the endurance and the the black culture within america is very tied to christianity yeah and mm-hmm. uh despite all the horrible horrible violence in the name of the bible against them not just violence but saying like yeah god god does not want you to be at the same level as me right which is only shows the holy spirit was guiding the clarity to people's like keep the endurance keep on keep focused on soulmate and christ and and you know so um, I wanted to my last question would be your moment to you write about so many historical figures in this book, uh, both known and lesser known or not known at all. I mean, there was, I'll admit like, there's some people I've never even heard of before. And yeah, same here. You taught, you taught us about, I want pick, pick, this might be a kind of hard question, but pick one that you can think of. Maybe God's just speaking to you like, Hey, I want you to talk about this person to explain, uh, maybe introduce them a little bit more, even if they're well-known, um, and that that just sticks out. You'd like to share with the audience a little bit more. The end goal is get, allow us, whether we're black or white, to gain some practical wisdom, humility, and courage moving forward. Yeah, and like maybe example. a little bit of a taste of what they're going to read in this book for yeah. somebody that you might think is a really good inroad. Yeah. Oh, it's a good question. Um, my mind automatically goes to the Fortins because I yeah. you talk a lot about them. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if anybody follows me on Instagram, they know that I have an it's, it's an unhealthy obsession. I <laughs> I'm I'm okay to admit it. It's fine. I'm not seeking help for it. I probably should. Hey, you're um, you're a history student. This is okay. I just love them so much. And um I love Charlotte Fortin. Um mm-hmm. she is so James Fortin um uh, was a grand mm-hmm grandson of an enslaved man um, who bought his freedom. James grew up in Philadelphia. He fought in um, the Revolutionary War when he enlisted when he was like 14 years old. He was a prisoner on a privateer vessel and then he was freed and then he apprenticed to the sailmaker and then he took over the business. And then this he dude lived a life. Yeah. Yes, he was like one of the richest black men in America, had all these children. And um, there's a really interesting story about him in chapter two where um, this he he's kind of an abolitionist but he's also kind of a jerk um he (laughs) even says like black people are made in god's image but it's like a little bit of a different type of image and you're like what are you saying right now to me right now Mm. um but he comes over to fortin's house and they're trying to read this letter um from this haitian dignitary but he wrote it in french and so that's right (laughs) so the 
white guy's like, oh, I don't speak French. And Horton's <laughs> like, no problem. My daughter speaks French. So she comes, <laughs> she translates the letter. And the guy's like, wow, that's so cool. You're so accomplished. Because in his mind, like a black woman being bilingual is like ridiculous. Yeah. So he's so impressed. And I'm sure that the Fortins felt like so... I don't know. Like if my dad called me over and I just spoke French after the guy left, we'd be like, yeah, like, yeah, we did. So <laughs> yeah. they found out later that after he leaves their house, he goes to another event and literally at the next event is talking about how black people are inferior to white mm. people and how we should free people <clears throat> who are enslaved, but we should also then send them to live in other colonies outside of America so that the races don't intermingle because black people are not worth. After he sat at this black man's table, this black man who is older than him, richer than him, serves the country that he lives in. Has a daughter who's smarter than him. Exactly. Um, And so the Fortins just over and over again, just kind of exemplify, I I think about their lives and I think about how lonely it must've been for them Mm. to rub shoulders so often with, with white people who, professed abolitionism but still did not think that they were worthy of dignity and respect and continue to live their lives faithfully and continue to serve in these ways and continue to serve alongside these people while still holding on to their dignity and still holding on to their faith is just incredible and so then you know charlotte is his granddaughter and so seeing the seeing seeing it carried forward um into different generations is just so encouraging then she marries francis grimke who's Mm -hmm. oh yeah sisters and their big time minister yep yeah yeah so it's just really cool to see the faithfulness of god and also to see um you know fortin had eight children i think Mm. oftentimes when we look into the past especially speaking as a woman when i look into the past a lot of times i am told like oh you know your motherhood is that's what's going to stand like that's what's going to be the thing that that everybody's going to remember that's going to be the thing that's most important is you raising these children um and i love my sons and i (laughs) just apart from them for like two days and i kept watching the video of my youngest son saying the word blue because the way he says it is so my husband was like are you Mm -hmm. watching the blue video again i was like yes i am so i love i love my kids but what's cool about the fortins is that their lineage is not this big robust lineage charlotte was only had one child and her daughter died in infancy um and then and then that's it you know francis didn't get married again and so the Ford and grimke line just ended but still their legacy of faith and their spiritual legacy lives on and i think that it lives on in me as a black christian who is picking up their story and carrying it forward and so i think that it's really cool to be able to honor different kinds of women, women who bore children, yes, and have generations after generations after generations after them, of course, um, but also women who didn't and left different kinds of legacies. So I think I think that's another part of the reason why I love the Fortins too. Yeah. That's great. I think that's a that's a great way to end this episode talking about this legacy, the legacy that your the through line comes through comes through you as well, through your writing, through your research, and that these voices speak for themselves to us today and, and help us Help us not just see the dignity in African-Americans and white, but everybody saying this dignity exists in everybody. Uh, and this is a God-given dignity mm-hmm. that we must recognize. And if we don't, and we are like we like we are against the gospel if we don't recognize this identity. But Jasmine, thank you so much for writing this book, for your research, for all the work that you've done, and for coming on our show and talking about it as well. Thank you for having me. Of course.
Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel from whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from or confessional tradition. uh, We all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and, and denominations. Uh, we, we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before, authors that you might not have heard of before. Um, I've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these. If you want to go to our show notes, find a link to the publisher. That helps them out a ton. A link to the author's page, to the book, to purchase it from the publisher themselves. It really helps them um, expose their work uh, through the publisher themselves. Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to whet your palate. You can we have already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author and then go from there. Yeah. So if you want to find these books and uh, and purchase one for yourself, purchase one for friends or family. And also, too, if you can find us on Apple, Spotify, any podcast catcher, rate and review us. That's that's how we're that's how we're best known is how we kind of make ourselves known. Uh, introduce these to a friend and and maybe just build your bookcase, build your reading, uh, read broader and, and read really well, all under the umbrella of our creedal faith under Jesus Christ.